Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Glenn Greenwald. He writes at greenwald.substack.com and is the author of the new book, Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Glenn, how are you? I'm good, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. I wanted to start with the Afghan bounty story, the Russian bounty story in Afghanistan. Can't do a segment every time a Russia Gate story collapses because there would, it would just take too much time. But this one I thought was particularly instructive and important. We heard all summer that Russia was putting bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. It was a constant obsession. And now you know from this reporting in The New York Times, which has since been confirmed by The Wall Street Journal, which has since been confirmed by The Wall Street Journal, that not only does the president know that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths. Get this, The Washington Post is now reporting that the alleged Russian bounties to Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are believed to have resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. Like this New York Times story about a stunning U.S. intel assessment, finding that Russia secretly ordered, uh, offered Afghan militants bounties to kill U.S. troops. Vladimir Putin is paying to put bounties on the heads of American troops. The White House was warned about Russia offering bounties, actual bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He's not even there yet. He's still suggesting that the reporting about the fact that there were these bounties offered is fake. Meanwhile, your organization, The New York Times and others, are getting some fairly detailed uh, reporting about how it actually works. Despite those denials over and over, sources tell CNN that last week the U.S. even shared that intelligence with British officials as some of the British troops would have been targeted as well. Yeah, that to, to say nothing of, of putting bounties on, on American troops. Um, it's unbelievable, Joy. Yeah. Public reporting that Russia had bounties on the heads of American soldiers. And you know what a bounty is? It's Somebody puts a price on your head and they will pay it if you are killed. I've gone head to head with Putin and made it clear to him we're not going to take any of his stuff. He's Putin's puppy. He still refuses to even say anything to Putin about the bounty on the heads of American soldiers. And then recently it collapsed with the Biden administration saying that it has low to moderate confidence in that allegation. I'm just wondering if you can talk about the significance of this story um, the consequences that it had on geopolitics and what it tells us about how our media handles claims like this. So the first thing that struck me about the story was the timing of it. And then the second thing that struck me about it was the usage. You know, it was a fairly standard story. It was the New York Times citing anonymous intelligence officials making obviously an inflammatory claim. So standing alone, you could just critique that by saying, oh, look, the New York Times yet again is just passing along what intelligence officials tell them without evidence, without showing evidence, without indicating they've seen any to believe it's true. They're just doing stenography work. And that, you know, it's, as you said, if, if, if you were to, you know, devote yourself to every time that happens, you would do nothing else. But what made this particular story you know, of, of such importance was the fact that it was published very shortly after Trump had announced his specific plan to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the end of 2020, something he had been saying he was going to do for a while, but he had just unveiled his plan. And so I can't prove that the reason 
that those people told the New York Times that this happened was to sabotage the withdrawal plan. But obviously, they knew that that would be an, uh, uh, a predictable result. And then what really drew my attention to it further was I watched the House Armed Services Committee hearing, which I think took place in July, where the $740 billion budget for the year was approved. And the more important part, because that approval was a foregone conclusion like it always is, were the amendments that members of Congress tried to attach to the budget approval. And one of the primary ones was a an amendment sponsored by leading pro-war Democrats who formed the majority on that committee, like Ruben Gallego and Jason Crow and the chairman, Adam Smith, who are funded by Boeing and Raytheon, joined with Liz Cheney and the neocons to pass uh, an amendment to defund any attempts to withdraw troops, not just from Afghanistan, but also from Germany. And one of the main arguments that they used, because it was only days before when the story was published, was, oh, the, the, the Kremlin is now paying bounties on, 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 for the lives of American servicemen and women, and we can't leave Afghanistan because to do so would be to reward Putin for his treachery. So it played a major role in the efforts by this bipartisan pro-war coalition to block withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was never any evidence for it. And as you know, what's so notable is that the Biden administration has basically admitted the CIA keeps saying we have moderate confidence, but the NSA is arguing vehemently against it. They're saying, look, if this had happened, we have the Russians so covered in our, our digital surveillance that we would know about it and we don't. So we have actually no confidence or very low confidence that this is true. And they debunked their own, you know, the story that came from the intelligence community, obviously, once Trump was gone, but also when the Biden administration needed the story to go away, because now Biden wants to withdraw from Afghanistan. And so you just see how easily they manipulate these journalists and the news cycle and the dissemination of information for their own ends constantly. And I really put the blame on journalists who continue to launder whatever they say with no skepticism. You go back to that New York Times story, and again, it didn't say it was true. It said that intelligence officials said it, but from there, the entire press was off and running. You know, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal confirmed the story, meaning they talked to the same CIA people or the same sources. And from there, it became, you know, one cable segment after the next, outraged and indignant over this, you know, villainous Putin who would pay to kill American soldiers. And it just became a proven fact in our discourse. And it turns out that there's basically no evidence for it all along. And even now, I'm not sure if you saw it, but Charlie Savage, who has done some uh, incredible reporting in the past, he was one of many the- Many years ago. Many years ago. He was one of the original reporters on this story. And I noticed over the summer that even as the conclusions of the NSA and other intelligence agencies, like the Defense Intelligence Agency, even as those were being leaked, and they were saying that there was no evidence for any of this, even back then there was an attempt by Charlie Savage and his colleagues at the Times to downplay- what the other intelligence agencies were saying and to parrot what the CIA was was feeding them. And even now, after the Biden administration takes the side of all the doubters who were saying that there's no intelligence for this, even now I've noticed still there's 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 effort by the Times and Charlie Savage to not acknowledge the flaws that were there from the start in their own reporting. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, I made a joke about Charlie doing great reporting years ago. He won the Pulitzer, I think, in 2006 for his work on the effects of so-called signing statements by the Bush administration that basically to nullify 
laws enacted by Congress to limit what George Bush can do in the war on terror by basically saying we won't. Um, I've known Charlie for a long time. I have respect for him as a, a reporter, not just from back then, but recently as well. But yeah, I think what happens is when you get so invested in a story like this, you obviously want to defend it even once it ends up being debunked because it's embarrassing and you feel bad. And also there's an allegiance that you have to your sources. So whoever told him this obviously is continuing to tell him that, no, this is actually, you know, a story for which there's corroborated evidence. And I think the problem becomes that they get so close to their sources that they become basically the spokesman for those sources. But, you know, also, Aaron, I think the other thing that, that happens is, you know, Charlie Savage, The New York Times, they know what they're doing. So they publish a story like this. And if you argue with Charlie about it, as I've done publicly and privately, he'll say, and I'm not going to say anything he said privately, but publicly, he'll say, look, we didn't do anything other than say the truth, which is that the CIA concluded that this happened. But he knew exactly what he was doing, which was feeding into this anti-Trump frenzy and this narrative that Trump is controlled by Putin. And he watched the rest of the media you know, talk about this as though it was proven fact and never once said, hey, guys, like, take a step back. We're not saying it's definitive. We're just saying the CIA concluded this because that made his story more important. And so he like his wash his hands of responsibility for the fact that what was injected into our discourse was something that was never true. You know, from the beginning, you had commanders on the ground in Afghanistan saying we haven't found any evidence that this has happened. I want to get to specifically to the bounties, specifically to the bounties. That is a unique, discrete piece of information that is not corroborated. You've all been briefed on it. I have too. And I am, I and the secretary and many others are taking it serious. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to find out if in fact it's true. We haven't found any evidence that this is true. So there were reasons to doubt the story all along. And yet the New York Times continues, even up to this very moment after the intelligence community has said there's only low to moderate confidence and insisting that they did nothing wrong. And it's similar to how before the election, when reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop was essentially blocked because some anonymous former official said that it might be Russian disinformation. That story is still treated as an open question. And Hunter Biden is feeding that saying that it, that even the U.S. intelligence community concluded that it was Russian disinformation. I'm wondering if you can talk about that and just the standard of evidence that has been established when it comes to labeling anything Russian and then what the media response to that is. Yeah, you know, this played a really big role in I leaving the intercept and it got kind of overshadowed by the fact that obviously the precipitating cause was the refusal to publish my article analyzing the questions, the serious questions I believe had had been raised by the Hunter Biden documents. But what really poison that entire process for me at least was that a week earlier the intercept published an article by jim risen telling people to ignore the hunter biden story that it should be viewed as a scam and a fraud and one of the arguments the main argument he cited in support of that view was the fact that there had been this letter issued by ex-cia agents who hate trump like john brennan Michael Hayden, you know, the standard anti-Trump intelligence operatives who concocted Russiagate in the first place and have used their credentials to undermine Trump. So it wasn't just that The Intercept was telling me 
your article does not meet our lofty editorial standards to be able to be published. It was the fact that just a week earlier on the same topic, they published utter shit, you know, total CIA propaganda claiming that the Hunter Biden document was, quote, Russian disinformation, which contains two claims. Number one, that it comes from Russia. And number two, that the documents are fabricated, neither of which had any evidence at the time and both of which have been discredited now. And that also became the way that Facebook t censored the story, the way Twitter justified suppressing the story and the way media outlets justified not covering it was, look, these, it wasn't even an official US intelligence agency, it was ex uh, CIA officials. And they even said in that letter, Aaron, the, that they issued, there were 50 of them or so saying, we believe this is Russian disinformation. Even in that letter, they themselves admitted, we have no evidence that it comes from Russia, nor do we have evidence that it's disinformation. We just know Russia really well from all of our years working in the intelligence community and, in, and intuitively on a gut level, this seems like the kind of thing that the Russians typically do. And, you know, they were even more honest than the media outlets like The Intercept and many others because they admitted that there was no evidence for it. But when it ended up appearing in The Intercept and many other places, they om omitted that part. They said they didn't say these intelligence agents say it's Russian dis disinformation, but admit they have no evidence for it, which is what you would do if you were even a minimally honest or skeptical journalist. They just endorsed this this fabricated narrative that people should ignore the revelations of the Hunter Biden documents because it was Russian disinformation. And it was amazing to me to watch, you know, after four years of falling on their faces over and over and over, repeating what the CIA told them to say about Russia, that they would just do that. But they were so desperate, you know, this is like two or three weeks before the election to make sure that nobody could accuse them of doing anything that might help Trump win, including doing their jobs by reporting negatively on Joe Biden, that they were just looking for an excuse, any excuse, and the CIA gave them one and they grabbed it. And in your article about the Russian bounties, you actually pointed out a brand new example of this on the exact same day that the Russian bounty story collapsed. So Biden administration acknowledges that the Russian bounty story basically is false. On that same day, the Treasury Department puts out a press release and there's one sentence where they claim that Konstantin Kalimnik, who was a starring character in the Russiagate collusion fantasies, I think basically because he's actually one of the few people in the Trump orbit who has a Russian passport. But anyway, this Treasury press release says that uh, they're sanctioning Kalimnik and they claim all of a sudden something that Robert Mueller didn't claim and the Senate Intelligence Committee didn't claim, that Kalimnik is a uh, Russian intelligence officer who passed polling data to the Russian government, supposedly for use in their sweeping and sophisticated uh, interference campaign. Now, it's one sentence. There's no evidence. All of the efforts to investigate this claim before by Mueller and the Senate produced no evidence, and they acknowledged that in the reports. These reports also uh, had some evidence, but didn't focus enough on the fact that Kalimnik is actually a valuable source for the West. He was a translator for Ukrainians and talking to U.S. officials in Ukraine. He provided information that was used by U.S. diplomats and he spoke often with them. All that was either ignored or downplayed. And there's a lot of other countervailing information about Klimic that I've written about and I'll be doing more soon. But anyway, regardless of the facts of him, this one sentence was then used as proof that all of the conspiracy theories about Trump-Russia collusion and specifically Kalimnik's role were true. 
the Trump campaign chairman gave a Russian intelligence officer the Trump campaign's internal strategy and polling data. That Russian intelligence officer then gave it to his bosses in the Russian intelligence agencies. And that presumably must have been very helpful to the Russian intelligence agencies in their concerted contemporaneous efforts to target their attacks on our election to the maximum benefit of candidate Donald Trump. Uh, the, the chain here is the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, and his deputy chairman are giving polling data and strategic information about their strategy in the Midwest to Kalimnik, who the deputy chairman acknowledges they knew was a spy or they believed was a spy. Uh, and in fact, as the Treasury Department has acknowledged, was a spy uh, and was providing this to Russian intelligence and not just Russian intelligence, but the same services that are involved in trying to help Trump win in that election. Uh, that's what most people would call collusion. Look, you know, Aaron, I mean, I there, there aren't many people who have a lower opinion of establishment liberal journalists than I do. You may be one of them, although I think we're probably you know, more or less at the same place with that. So it's very hard for them to do anything that that shocks me in a negative way. But that did. <laughs> the Treasury Department called it a press release, right? They didn't even purport that it was something more elevated. You know, it, they said it's a press release. They were announcing sanctions. And, as in, in, and in passing, to justify the sanctions, they made this assertion about passing polling data to Russian intelligence officials that, as you say, an 18-month investigation with unlimited resources, armless subpoena power couldn't demonstrate. And I watched immediately journalists like Chris Hayes and many others see that press release and then instantly treat it, that claim, as true. You know, Chris Hayes snidely went onto Twitter and said, oh, yeah, there's no collusion. All that happened is that, you know— um, the Russians helped the Trump campaign and then Paul Manafort turned around and gave the Russian intelligence agency through Kalimnik polling data. He had no basis for saying that happened other than the fact that the, the Treasury Department in a press release asserted it in one sentence with no evidence. And yet his brain instantly told him he should treat that as true and like report it as though it had happened. How, how can you do that? How can you look at a government press release and encourage everybody to treat the assertion in it as being a proven fact when you haven't even seen any evidence for it and when an actual investigation turned up nothing and you know it's we're at the point where they have no standards they are absolute partners to the US government and to the intelligence agencies if the intelligence agencies tell them that Donald Trump is being controlled by you know Martians hiding underground, they will instantly report that is true without needing any corroboration. They just, they're, 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 they're parrots for what these intelligence agencies tell them to think and say to the point that even if they call it a press release and don't even purport to, you know, prove it, they'll just march and, and, and forward and, and start talking about it like it was true. It was amazing to watch them do that in mass and not one of them ever said, wait a minute, why are we assuming this happened when the government hasn't yet? Maybe it did happen. Maybe the government has evidence for it. But until they show it, we shouldn't be acting as though they've proven it. That's just so basic to journalism. And they just no longer have that instinct at all. It's just dead and suffocated. And I, 
I noted this in your article. I saw this in your article. I think you're too generous in saying that even maybe it's true because there's so much countervailing evidence about Kalimnik that he was a valued uh, Western source that that Rick Gates, who was Mueller's key witness for this claim about the polling data, told Mueller, as Rick Gates told me in an interview and he said elsewhere on CNN. Is it not possible that they took the internal campaign data that you provided and used it to interfere in the election? Well, first, let me say about the campaign data, and there's been a lot of misinformation uh, over the last three years about that specific data. And just to be clear, and for the first time hearing it from me, that campaign data in, in most cases was dated and it was called top line data. That is simply that it has Trump 50%, Clinton 48%. There was no specific uh, uh, detailed data about any of those polls. It was a combination of some internal polling on specific states, as well as a lot of public data that was shared. And in most cases, it was sent several days after the fact. Uh, that information was given to Constantine to provide information to people in Ukraine. Uh, I was never led to believe that it was going to anybody other than the two people that yeah. uh, he specified. And I took him at his word for that. That Rick Gates told Mueller that the reason Kalimnik was told to pass on some polling data was, first of all, it wasn't even sensitive polling data. It was basically from real clear politics like Trump 51, Clinton 49. But, but, but before you go on with that, that point, which I think you're making a, an important point, but like what, what is that even sensitive polling data? How is polling data sensitive? Like it's classified top secret, like it's treason to to pass on polling data showing which are the swing key swing. How is that sensitive? Well, they're that saying they're saying that it's internal. So but go ahead. They're saying that it's private polling data that the public couldn't have. But actually, we're, we're, Rick Gates, who was the one who told the Mueller team about the polling data, he told them that it was from real clear politics. It was like, you know, Trump 51, Clinton 49 in Michigan or something like that. And that the reason why Manafort wanted Kalimnik to send that, not even to Russians, but to Ukrainians, was because he wanted to show them that, that you know, his boy was in the race and he was valuable and that he, because he wanted money. That's what Manafort is about. Mueller team downplayed that. They mentioned that, but they downplay it. And everyone pretends as if the it's some mystery as to why this was happening. So the only witness who, upon which all these claims are based has a reason for it, but yet all that gets ignored. And then you have these uh, attempts to make the claim and they they refuse to say any evidence. So let me just read to you. I, uh, I wrote Treasury and I asked them, what is the evidence for this? I didn't get a response. I wrote them five times, didn't, didn't hear back. But somebody leaked something to NBC News, a reliable vehicle for Russiagate disinformation. And uh, the first sentence is, the US intelligence community has developed new information about Konstantin Kalimnik, whom they call a Russian spy, that leads them to believe the associate of ex-Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort passed internal Trump campaign polling and strategy information to Russian intelligence services, to U.S. officials say. So it's not even that they have evidence that he did. They have information that they say leads them to believe that he did that. So they're actually acknowledging there that they don't even have the evidence. And then they go on to say uh, that they will not disclose when or how the U.S. came into possession of the new intelligence about Kalimnik, including whether or not the information was developed during the Trump or Biden administrations, the officials did not identify the source or type of intelligence that had been developed. So basically, here's this claim. We're not going to tell you anything about it. And on your point about the polling data itself, I mean, look, 
even if it was sensitive internal Trump campaign polling data, which Rick Gates says it was not. What's it supposed to be used for? The sweeping Russian social media campaign that barely had any ads and most of them weren't even about the election and featured things like buff Bernie. It's like the 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 theory itself is so ludicrous, but yet all of its various uh, aspects are treated as documented fact. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I feel vindicated that I did allude to the possibility that you may be one of the only people who have a lower regard <laughs> for these media organs than I. And the fact that you're accusing me of being too generous to them, I think <laughs> is good proof of that since I've never, I don't think I've ever been accused of that previously. Um, but no, you're right. You know, I mean, look, I don't think you, I, in general, you can't prove a negative, right? You cannot prove that this didn't happen. Though you're right that all of the evidence that's available militates against this narrative compared to no, literally no evidence in support of its having happened. And the fact that Mueller for 18 months never unearthed any evidence that suggests that it did happen. And in fact, unearthed evidence that it didn't, which is what you just summarized, you know, further demonstrates how corrupt these, these journalists are. For and and you know I think a lot of it is just sloth. I don't think they really know the details of the collusion theory or RussiaGate or the Mueller investigation. I really don't think they know it on a granular level or even on like a substantive level. They know it on the broadest strokes. They just believe that it happened. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with with why Charlie Savage continues to defend the story because his reputation and his name is so invested in it that. It, there's almost no evidence you could show him that will get him off the view that the New York Times reported this properly and correctly. The idea that Trump and the Russians colluded was something that MSNBC and, and CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times went all in on. They gave themselves Pulitzers for reporting that supported this theory that was designed to foster it. And so... I don't think that a lot of these journalists, especially whose careers depend on pleasing a liberal audience like Chris Hayes's, like the Chris Hayes's of the world, the, 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 the possibility that they could acknowledge that this wasn't true doesn't, it doesn't even exist for them. It would be career ending. Imagine if Chris Hayes went on Twitter or his show and said, you know, I don't think, I think we should have a lot of doubt about these new pronouncements about collusion and the evidence that's available actually undermines the collusion theory, not supports it. You would hear the sounds of, you know, resistance liberals clicking off MSNBC so fast that I doubt Chris Hayes's show would be able to be on the air for, you know, like weeks. Um, and all of these incentives are constantly at play. And then you have the added social media incentive of the group think that's fostered. The, you know, you go, I think that tweet that I mentioned that Chris posted, I, he was just the first one I saw. You know, it went predictably viral. A few thousand people retweeted it. Probably 10,000 people or more liked it because he was declaring, oh, look, the collusion theory just got proven by a press release from the Treasury Department that has no evidence and that is contradicted by all the available evidence. And those are rewards like dopamine gets sent to the brain. He feels like, you know, he's doing something that's increasing his popularity. And so it's just a kind of constant reward system that keeps them affirming things and they don't really care any longer whether it's true or not. Um, they care about those incentives, not because they're even consciously corrupt, but because that's how the human brain functions. And, you know, ironically, I think I've, we talked about this before. 
But one of the best books describing the dynamic that I just referenced was actually written by Chris himself in 2011 called Twilight of the Elites before he got his MSNBC show. And he wrote a book that the theme of which was no matter how smart you are, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how much integrity or no matter how many principles you have, if you immerse yourself in an elite institution, inevitably, inevitably, it will co-opt you. You seeing the world through the blinders that they want you to wear. Because it's so opted to punish people who dissent and reward those who submit that almost no human brain is capable of resisting that unless you remove yourself from it. And he has become exhibit A for the truth of the thesis in the book that he wrote. It sounds like the kind of people who are who fall into cults like QAnon. And that's why I call those who peddle in Russiagate disinformation Blue Anon. It has a similar incentive structure. It's comforting, helps explain reality. It has benefits. You're a part of something, helps explain a very complicated world. And it require it allows you to disengage from reality, uh, which I think many people are trying to escape. Um, I think for all the all the disparaging of QAnon members, I think there's some psychological projection going on. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, obviously, if you say to people in media that Rachel Maddow and you know Wolf Blitzer and Don Lemon and Joe Scarborough and, 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 and Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell are the functional equivalents of QAnon. They'll say that's absolutely crazy. QAnon believes these, you know, insane deranged conspiracy theories. What is more deranged <laughs> than the view that the Russians had seized control of the American government and the levers of power through sexual and financial blackmail over the president? It's like the kind of movie script that Hollywood would reject on the grounds that it's just too wildly, you know, fictitious to even try and convince people to pay attention for 90 minutes. And yet that's what they've been peddling for the longest time. And they do so in a way that's much more deleterious because they have a larger audience in QAnon. They have the credibility of these corporate institutions that carry with it a certain respect and credibility and elite circles that obviously QAnon lacks. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right about the psychological and cultural incentives. Like one of the benefits of QAnon is exactly what you said, which is it gives people a sense of community and belonging at a time when citizens in the United States lack that more than ever before. There was, you know, even before the pandemic, there were all these warning signs blinking red your father obviously has done amazing work on exactly this uh, dynamic that modern society is not giving human beings what we need, what our brains are constructed to require, like oxygen or water, which is a sense of belonging, a sense of community. We're all atomized. We're all, you know, uh, the, the secularization of Western democracies means we don't have religion any longer. We don't have spirituality. We have no way to understand and navigate the universe. That's why even before the pandemic, you had things like addiction and depression and anxiety disorders and suicide all radically increasing. And then you add on to that the pandemic where we constantly have the fear of death and sickness and we're isolated from one another more than ever before. And so there is this craving to kind of, you know, have theories that give purpose and meaning and 
conspiracy theories do that. It creates communities around which we can, you know, kind of bond with other people. And I absolutely think that's a big part of what explains QAnon. But I also think it's a big part of what explains, you know, the similar uh, dependence on conspiracy theories and unified theories of purpose that these cable networks to great profit for themselves have been peddling as well. And all these theories have the added benefit for the people who run this country of avoiding the real power centers. You know, in the case of QAnon, it's whatever all their deranged conspiracy theories are. In the case of Blue and on, it's Russian oligarchs instead of U.S. oligarchs. And that's why I think it um, helps explain its spread because it's actually it doesn't threaten anyone actually in power. And really, the focus on all these insane conspiracy theories benefits people in power. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the reasons why I talk about Chris or Rachel is because I've known them for a very long time. I've known them personally. You know, I was on their shows a decade ago. I know exactly what their intellectual and journalistic political trajectory um, has been. But, you know, even taking a, a step back from those individuals, if you look at liberal and left wing journalism for a long time, it was focused, you know, primarily on things like the evil of the CIA or the menace posed by concentrated wealth in Wall Street or the military industrial complex. You go and look at any liberal digital outlet, BuzzFeed, the kind of BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, Vox, Vice, Access, or what journalists do who work at those liberal cable outlets, MSNBC and CNN, and you will find that they talk about those entities almost never, almost never. There's no reporting on any of those power centers because they don't regard them as malevolent. To the extent they talk about them, it's to disseminate their propaganda. It's to have John Brennan on and treat him like, you know, a wise Socrates who deciphers the world for us. Or they peddle CIA, you know, manufactured stories like Hunter Biden's doc laptop is Russian disinformation or the Russians have put bounties on the heads of American soldiers. That's the only time they pay attention to those power centers is to serve them and disseminate their propaganda. They're obsessed instead with wild conspiracy theories and with depicting ordinary private citizens as the real enemies, as the real threats because of the wrong political views or wrong political ideologies they've embraced. And this transformation has been very rapid within liberal and, and even left-wing journalistic circles where they pay almost no attention any longer to actual power. And I, I think you're absolutely right that the biggest beneficiaries of these obsessions on wild conspiracy theories and P-tapes and you know, Putin and all of that is that we don't pay attention to who wields power for real in the United States and how that power expresses itself and how it's uh, concentrated in the hands of a very few uh, small number of people. My guest is Glenn Greenwald. His new book is called Securing Democracy, My Fight for Press Freedom and Justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil. So, Glenn, we've been talking about scam, uh, Russiagate journalism. Let's move on to a real journalism story, which is your reporting in Brazil. And your book tells a story of that. You exposed how a purported corruption allegation was used by Brazil's right wing to bring down uh, its uh, popular two-term president, Lula, and prevent him from running. What I'm curious about is, over the course of your reporting, did Operation Car Wash, the mechanism for all this, this supposed corruption investigation, do you think it started out as a deliberate attempt 
to target Lula and the Workers' Party, or is that just what it morphed into? I don't think it started out as this kind of nefarious conspiracy. And I say that for a couple of reasons. In part, it was really just a kind of coincidence that fell into the lap of, you know, this low-level judge. You know, he's basically the equivalent of, say, a federal district court judge. He's not on an appellate court. He's not on the Supreme Court. He's just a first-level trial judge in this mid-sized town of Curitiba, which most people who don't live in Brazil have never heard of for good reason. It's not Sao Paulo. It's not Rio de Janeiro. It's not Brasilia. You know, it's not a city that really has ever been that important. And it basically was just luck. Um, They were investigating a money laundering scheme that was being conducted through a car wash in Curitiba, which is how it got its name. And the money launderer who they caught right-handed, basically, said, look, uh, I have knowledge about corruption on the part of the most powerful and the richest people in Brazil, and I'm willing to tell you everything I know in exchange for leniency. And as they began investigating his allegations, they found that he was not bluffing. He was the real deal. He had been like a political fixer and a money launderer for politicians in numerous political parties who would do things like take bribes from Petrobras, the giant Brazilian-owned state-owned oil company, and the construction companies that get government contracts to who have built Brazil. And early on, they were sending genuinely corrupt billionaires, you know, heirs to huge construction fortunes and top executives at Petrobras and leaders from political parties to prison. And a lot of people, not just on the right or the center, but the left as well, were applauding it because it was a genuinely, you know, well-motivated corruption probe. Even Lula says that he thinks that Sergio Moro, the judge who oversaw the whole thing, who ultimately found him guilty on dubious charges and then joined the Bolsonaro government as his justice minister, even Lula told me in two different interviews that he believes Moro started off with genuinely benevolent and noble intentions of rooting out corruption. What they found, though, very quickly, and, and you know, this is such a perfect and illustrative story, Aaron, of like something that we always tell ourselves and hear, which is that power corrupts, that power will corrupt if human beings can get it with no limits. Because what ended up happening was that this car wash operation took on an almost religious-like fervor, very similar to Russiagate and what we were just talking about with QAnon where Brazilians who were suffering under an economic crisis that came from Wall Street, the 2008 financial crisis that reverberated years later in developing countries like Brazil, and a resulting epidemic of violent crime and a crisis of public security, were you know so furious and angry they were looking for something to place their faith in, and they found this you know young judge and this very young team of prosecutors, and they said, finally, someone's here to clean up our country. And the media started turning them into like religious like figures. You know, you saw Sergio Moro being depicted as Superman at political protest. His, you know, life-sized image of uh, uh, images of him would be on murals on the side of buildings in every city you went. His face was on every magazine cover. And that kind of power where he became the most powerful figure in Brazil, everyone was afraid to defy him just became incredibly corrupting. And they started believing that they were so noble and benevolent that anything that they did, including breaking the law and engaging in corruption, became justified because that's how we start thinking. If we're so 
drowning in veneration and adoration. We believe out our cause is so important that we can start, you know, skirting laws and skirting ethical lines. And then very quickly, power, powerful institutions saw how, how easily this probe could be weaponized for their political purposes. And they started kind of directing it like a cruise missile at the left-wing parties that they had tried for two decades but failed to defeat at the ballot box. And the big prize became first President Dilma, who they impeached using this narrative, and then ultimately Lula. And so by the time our source came to us, having hacked the telephones of you know Judge Morrow and these prosecutors over the course of many years, the evidence of their corruption and lawbreaking and improprieties as they became increasingly politicized was so overwhelming that, you know, it ended up basically completely reversing the legacy of what they had done. And it's now regarded not any longer as the greatest anti-corruption probe, but in a sense, the biggest fraud perpetrated by judges and prosecutors in the history, certainly of Brazil and maybe even the, the hemisphere. And I want to ask you about what you face personally after exposing this, because Initially, this did not lead to an immediate exoneration of Lula. First, they tried to indict you. You were indicted in early 2020, and you faced harassment at a level that I was even surprised by, despite following your work very closely. I'm going to quote from the book. You say, uh, talking about you and your husband, David Miranda, David and I were well accustomed to the sort of standard non-serious threats everyone with a non-public platform has to endure of the I hope you die or you will pay variety. But these threats of violence were markedly different with a great deal of private information about our family, where we lived, where our kids went to school, personal data about both of us, along with gruesome and demented threats of what they would do to our children. If you could talk to us about this, Glenn. Yeah, so, you know, first of all, um, when... I was contacted by the source and and then started doing the reporting. It was May of 2019. And then our first stories were published in early June. So we're talking about four months after Bolsonaro was inaugurated. And he didn't just win the 2018 election by a large margin, but this political party that basically didn't exist before 2018, that he just kind of, you know, instrumentalized into this far right party also swept in this, this huge number of, of previously obscure extremists. And, and that party became the second largest party in Congress right behind the the Workers' Party, which you know has been the dominant political force in Brazil for 20 years. And on top of that, by taking Judge Moro and putting him into the most important position in his government, which is the the Minister of Justice and Public Security, he had all of those people who weren't Bolsonaristas but were kind of followers of the car wash operation, which were a lot of them, including especially in the media, also consolidated behind him in this unified coalition. And then on top of that, um, one of the most one of the cleverest things that Bolsonaro did was he, um, during the 2018 campaign, picked this University of Chicago trained economist, Paul Geddes. He was this standard, you know, austerity imposing, privatizing economist who loves Pinochet and wants to turn Brazil into Chile. And he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with the economy to the rich people. He said, you don't have to worry. Paulo Geddes is my guru. He's going to run everything. And so the rich 
you know, oligarchical sectors of Brazil were also completely unified behind Bolsonaro. So they were at the peak of their power at the time that we were about to start our reporting. And, you know, four months earlier, what had happened was uh, this member of Congress, this who is a, a, a member of uh, my husband's party, the left-wing socialist party, Jean Willis, who had served two terms in Congress and was the only openly gay member of Congress ever elected in Brazil's history. And it was like an arch enemy of the Bolsonaro movement. He actually spit one time on Bolsonaro. They hated each other. He was getting so many death threats with pictures of the front of his house, with photos of the license plate of his mother's car, the same kind of threats, you know, we're going to kill you. But he fled Brazil, the only country he had ever lived in, and gave up his seat in Congress. And that's when David entered Congress in his place because David, through the vote total, was the next highest candidate to run. And that already had created a huge kind of, you know, controversy in uh, negative attention on on David and myself, the fact that he was becoming the, the only other openly gay congressman ever to be a member of the Brazilian Congress. He was kind of the new Jean. That was four months earlier. And the year before that, in 2018, almost like a year to the day that the source contacted me, one of our closest friends, Marielle Franco, who was a black LGBT uh, woman from the favelas who was elected alongside David in 2016 to the Rio de Janeiro city council from that same party, David and she sat next to each other every day was brutally assassinated in March of 2018 when she left an event at nine o'clock at night being driven home by her driver and a car of militiamen, former members of the police and the military pulled up alongside of her and pumped four bullets into her skull and three into the back of her driver, killing both of them instantly. So we were already facing a lot of, you know, there's just like violence and danger and threat in the air with this new Bolsonaro regime. Nobody knew what Brazilian institutions were going to do in terms of resisting his incursions, what this movement would be capable of. And so that was the environment into which we began doing this reporting. And the primary target of it was the most important person in the Bolsonaro government, which was Minister Moro. And he was in charge of the surveillance apparatus of the Brazilian government, the investigative arms of the Brazilian government, the federal police, the financial investigators, essentially the entire law enforcement and surveillance apparatus had been consolidated under his control. And so it was really like the first week when we started getting those kind of emails, you know, saying, here's where your children go to school. We're going to abduct them. We're going to take them to a favela. We're going to videotape them being chopped up and fed to dogs and you're going to watch it. You know, we know where you live and they had our address. They had a ton of non-public information, which could have only come from people inside the government. And, you know, also by this point, there was a scandal linking the Bolsonaro family to the militia that had murdered, that had assassinated Marielle. And so, you know, as I said, in the passages you shred, if you have a public platform, you get what are called death threats, but are really not death threats. They're just like, you're going to get what's coming to you. Watch your back. These were markedly different. Um, and so as we did the reporting, we did have this protocol that the government had recommended. David got uh, armed security provided by the Congress. Um, and I had to hire private security that was paid for by the Intercept where, you know, I couldn't leave my house without an armored vehicle and multiple armed security officers, something that continues to this very day. I haven't left my house in about a year and a half or almost two years. Um, and then throughout the reporting, you know, there was a very coordinated fake news 
machine that the Bolsonaros used. They produced forged documents purporting to show that I had paid uh, Russian hackers in Bitcoin in order to obtain this source material, which obviously would be a serious crime. Generals were leaking to news magazines that they were studying how to prosecute me under national security law. Bolsonaro himself threatened me with prison multiple times. Um, several public events that I had planned got canceled because of security concerns. Others where I would appear to give a speech, they would have to take extreme security measures like having me speak from a boat in the middle of the water offshore. And even then they had Bolsonaro protesters shooting fireworks at the boat, setting a banner on fire in the crowd. That was, you know, the, the, the environment for six or seven months as we were doing the reporting. And then, as you say, it got, it culminated in early uh, 2020 with the equivalent of the justice department criminally charging me along with the people they said were my sources with like 122 felony counts and the only reason that got thrown out was because the Brazilian Supreme Court had the year had months earlier issued a ruling barring the Bolsonaro government from retaliating against me for the journalism after Bolsonaro was continuously threatening to do so. So, yeah, it was very intense. Um, I told the story in the book how when the source first contacted me, I had said to David, look, you know, we've been through this already once before with the Snowden reporting. So I feel like we're going to know exactly what to do. And he said, you know, I think you're being very naive, this is going to be much worse and much more dangerous because in the Snowden reporting, the governments we were angering were, you know, thousands of miles away, an ocean away, whereas this time the government that we're aimed at is the government that rules the country in which we're living. And he turned out to be very right about that. And even if Lula returns to power next year in the elections, the same forces who killed Mario Franco and the same forces who targeted you and threatened you, they're not going to go away. And I'm just wondering how you how that sits with you and whether it how it influences your thoughts on whether or not to stay in Brazil, if that's even a, a question for you. Yeah, you know, it's not really a question for me. Um, I remember, you know, when we started doing the Snowden reporting, we knew early on that the NSA was going to the U.S. government was going to do the things that it ended up doing. Right. You don't get to take and hold and then publish, you know, thousands of the most sensitive documents from the most secretive agency within the world's most powerful government without them threatening you and taking retaliatory action against you. And so when you do something like that, you just have to kind of commit to yourself. Not only am I going to take reasonable precautions against it and then ignore it and forget about those risks. Otherwise I'll be paralyzed with fear. But one of the important things to do is to show that you don't, you're not afraid of them. You're not going to be intimidated by them. And so for example, like when I was doing the, the, the Brazil reporting at any moment, I could have left Brazil. I could have just gone to the U S I could have stayed in New York and done all the reporting from New York without all of those threats hovering over my head. But I felt like, you know, one of the things that we were doing, maybe more important than even the reporting itself, was taking a stand for Brazilian democracy. It was really the first test case of whether Brazilian democracy was going to be able to withstand the Bolsonaro government. So if I had left Brazil, that would have sent the opposite message, which is there is no press freedom in Brazil. If you want to do reporting on the Bolsonaro government, you have to leave Brazil in order to be safe, in order to go do it. And, you know, Brazil is a country that I've lived in for 15 years. It is a country that gave me my husband. Our two children are, are Brazilian. David's political career is based in Brazil. 
And it's a country I really believe in. And so, you know, the only way I'm not going to believe if it got to the point where, you know, the threat was just so relentless and I felt even unsafe with the security measures that we had taken. I'm not saying I'd be suicidal and, and not leave. You know, as I said, the congressman who previously served in the Congress decided he had gotten to the point where, you know, it wasn't worth it for him any longer. I understand that that decision. But for me, I feel like, you know, I went into journalism to do these kinds of battles, right? Not just to report stories, but to take a stand for values I believe in. And I feel like we won. I feel like at the end of the day, we did win. I have a lot of scars from the battle. Um, but I feel like we did kind of show these institutions that you can stand up to the Bolsonaro movement and that it's worth doing so because the cost of not doing it is regression to the military dictatorship that ruled Brazil until 1985, that killed dissidents, that imprisoned journalists, that exiled artists. And I think there are enough people who are willing to sacrifice and risk for Brazilian democracy, just like there was back in the era of the dictatorship when people were killed and imprisoned and, you know, exiled and threatened for uh, fighting against that dictatorship as well. And currently, Bolsonaro is uh, overseeing arguably the worst COVID response in the world. And it was recently revealed by Brazil Wire that the U.S. government, in a report by the Department of Health and Human Services, bragged that it persuaded Brazil to reject the Russian COVID-19 vaccine. I'm just wondering if that has created a stir at all, that revelation has created a stir at all inside Brazil. Not really. I mean, you know, it's interesting, Aaron. Um, in a lot of ways, the treatment of Bolsonaro by the liberals, by Brazilian liberals, by the Brazilian left, by the Brazilian media is very similar to the way they uh, responded to Trump. And I think Bolsonaro won for many of the same reasons that Trump won, which was that he had harnessed this kind of anger and rage toward establishment institutions. And so, you know, obviously I stand second to nobody in my view that Bolsonaro was a serious menace and danger to Brazilian democracy and to basic civil liberties. I know myself, my own personal experience that he is. But I also think that one of the things that has happened is that elite institutions have become so unhinged in how they talk about Bolsonaro that a lot of people have just tuned them out. And, you know, it's like if you cry wolf enough times, people stop taking you seriously when the wolf actually comes. I was always concerned that that was what the media was doing with Trump. I think the big media, even, you know, parts of the Brazilian left are starting to do that with Bolsonaro. And so, you know, the ability to convey just how disastrous and deadly his mismanagement of the COVID crisis has been, and it is by far the worst of any uh government to say nothing of, you know, specific reports like the role of the U.S. government in convincing them not to buy Russian vaccines, which is absolutely true. The Biden administration is furious that the Germans are now buying the, Sp the Sputnik vaccine. Um, they, they don't really it doesn't really percolate because people have kind of tuned it out. Um, but, you know, I think that I think, you know, I, I tend to to see Brazil's problems is being domestic in origin primarily. It's really a byproduct of both the malice and the ineptitude of the Bolsonaro government and not so much the involvement of the United States. We spoke earlier about how Russiagate has impacted media. 
I want to ask you specifically about progressive media. One of my biggest frustrations about Russiagate was how it enlisted so many leftist outlets in promoting the national security state narratives that they are supposed to be challenging. And in some cases, once did, I think, very bravely. Um, I'm thinking specifically of two outlets, your former outlet, The Intercept, and I know that them parroting the CIA line when it comes to the Hunter Biden story, that was a major factor in your departure. And I'm also thinking of my former outlet, Democracy Now!, where I worked for over 10 years. Now, I have noticed that they have not had you on in a very long time, not even when you were indicted for your Brazil reporting, the one that exposed the campaign to undermine and imprison Lula. And this was surprising to me, especially because, I mean, you were a guest for a long time on many issues. And also, you know, during Russiagate, I think you actually saved their reputation because while they were going along with it with pretty much every other guest, including interviewing a Trump-Russia conspiracy theorist as their primary voice on Russiagate, you would come on occasionally and debunk it. But since then, I've noticed that you are among those who they're not interviewing anymore. And I've spoke, I recently spoke to Jimmy Dore about this, where they've frozen out many people who we used to interview when I was there, like Stephen F. Cohen, who recently passed away and wasn't on Democracy Now! for the last three years of his life, starting in April 2017. He died in September 2020. And what I said on Jimmy, on the Jimmy Dore show, was how sad I was about that, because this leading progressive show denied its audience of the leading critic of Russiagate and of the new Cold War that it was fueling. And that was part of a trend, I think, towards parroting the establishment narrative. So I'm wondering if you are now a victim of this too, if uh, you have also been frozen out of democracy now, whether whether you're a victim of this trend in progressive media to isolate voices that challenge the establishment narratives that they used to challenge too. For sure, for sure. You know, I think the, the only reason why um, they did put me on to talk about my skepticism of Russiagate was because they had me on constantly to talk about anything in the news. You know, I would say over the last decade from, say, like 2010 until maybe 2019, I was definitely one of the most frequent guests on Democracy Now!, maybe the most frequent. You know, maybe there's some people on more than me, but, um, you know, they would have me on constantly. I'd be on there all the time. So they were kind of having me on to talk about my Russiagate skepticism almost despite themselves they just because they just kind of i was one of the people all into as a guest whenever it would come to national security or foreign policy or or media debates and i think the last time i've been on democracy now was mid 2019 i think i went on the last time to talk about the brazil reporting that we did it was like maybe a month after we uh broke the story and i'm pretty sure i haven't been on since including as you said even when i was uh, indicted when I got invited by every media outlet in the world to be interviewed. Even CNN invited me on. They eventually canceled and but 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 covered it. Um, and then you know I I think I I just the book that I I just published is my sixth book. The first book I published was in 2006. I've been on Democracy Now to talk about all five of my books. The first week that it came out, they immediately asked me. In the case of this book, which is a book about my confrontations with the Bolsonaro government and the exposés I did on the corruption at the highest levels of a right-wing Brazilian government, my publisher, which is a small left-wing publisher because I had a contract with a big publishing outlet, and they said, if you want to write a Brazil book, go ahead, and then you can do the book that you have with us after. So it's a small left-wing 
publisher, which is uh, Haymarket, that has a great relationship with Democracy Now. They place almost every one of their authors, you know, even ones who are obscure and not very well known on Democracy Now. Called Democracy Now or emailed them and said, hey, we'd like to put Glenn on. And they just got no response. Clearly, I'm blackballed from Democracy Now. A show that, as I said, you know, I've been on probably more times than almost anybody, if not more times than anybody, because of my dissent. And what's so amazing about it, Aaron, is as you covered recently in in a, in a segment that you did with Jimmy Dore, they'll put anyone on to talk about books. You know, they had Stuart Stevens, a long, lifelong GOP operative who worked for George Bush and Dick Cheney and Karl Rove. And the, he wrote some shitty book about how the Republican Party used to be this like noble, kind, compassionate, integrity-driven party, meaning under George Bush and Dick Cheney and Karl Rove, and Trump ruined it all. Look, I, I think that George Bush uh, believed very passionately uh, in, in an idea of compassionate conservatism. I know he did. I saw it. And the party's just lost that sense of, of right and wrong as being led by Donald Trump. And one of the lessons I, I really take from this is how much leaders matter. I think the party could have been led in a different direction. But he went on and poured that book out. And Amy and Juan Gonzalez talked about this book like it was such an important piece of political literature. And he got to talk all the, about how George Bush was genuinely a compassionate conservative. And they didn't say, well, isn't like rendition and torture and like Guantanamo and lying to destroy Iraq and letting New Orleans drown, contrary to the view that compassionate conservatism reigned in the Bush years, they said nothing. He was treated like, because what happened is the Trump era broke everybody's brain in the center left or left wing media, not everybody's, but almost everybody's to the point where everything became binary. You were either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And if you were anti-Trump, you are considered to be an ally, somebody who is you know, deserves adoration and support. Bill Crystal, David Frum became stars of MSNBC because of that framework. And that's what led Stuart Stevens onto Democracy Now. Conversely, if you weren't sufficiently anti-Trump, if you didn't shape your entire politics to oppose Trump, if you didn't endorse every lie disseminated in the name of stopping Trump, you became an enemy to the point where you are blackballed. So Democracy Now!, which always, like The Intercept, conceived of itself as airing dis dissident and marginalized voices, it wasn't just me. They don't put anyone on who's banned from MSNBC or CNN because of left-wing dissent, even Matt Taibbi or, um, or yourself. It's just they, they, they are indistinguishable from all of the liberal outlets that they always perceived and conceived of themselves as being opposed to. And they're no different. They fit perfectly into the kind of Vox, you know, MSNBC, talking points memo, pro-DNC, media, they do nothing different. All the people they put on could easily go on those programs and do, and all the people they ban and exclude are excluded and banned from those same networks. And that has contaminated so much center left and left wing media that, you know, it's almost impossible to find distinctions between them and, and CNN or the New York times at this point. And that's the tragedy is because it's meant that for institutions like democracy now, who I fundamentally regard at the core of it, are noble. I really do. I was there for a decade. I worked with many of the people who are still there. I work with Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. These are noble people at their core. But the tragedy of this era is, as you say, it broke people's brains and it's 
led to people abandoning what makes them great and what makes them stand apart. And even on the point of it being anti-Trump, it's nominally anti-Trump. But I mean, one of my biggest frustrations was that you couldn't have a bigger gift to Trump than to fixate on a conspiracy theory that he's a puppet of the Russians and to put your faith in Robert Mueller to find the smoking gun. I mean, that's really what being anti-Trump meant over the last four years. So in reality, well, and, and, and not only that, just like to add to that one point, I mean, of course, anyone who is, you know, center left or left is anti-Trump and in, in the sense that, you know, you don't agree with his ideology, you don't agree with his policies, but, you know, during the Bush years, the independent left-wing outlets like democracy now, or like the more radical, you know, left-wing bloggers and writers, didn't just confine themselves to saying Bush and Cheney and the Republicans are terrible because that was being said by Paul Krugman and, you know, liberal writers at the New York Times and MSNBC and Keith Olbermann. What made places like Democracy Now! genuinely bastions of dissent was the fact that they would point out all the ways that the Democratic Party was enabling those policies, was supporting those policies, just like they did the entire time that Trump was in office, you know, they were constantly, the Democrats were empowering Trump with larger military budgets, with greater surveillance powers. So often their actions in policy did not match their rhetoric about Trump. And being a critic from the left of the Democratic Party, not just of the Republican Party, which is easy, is always what was the defining attribute of these outlets and that made them so important. And they lost all of that. And they also lost any willingness, even that it doesn't it, it, it wasn't necessary for Democracy Now or Amy Goodman or Juan Gonzalez to agree with my views on Russiagate or to agree with the what you just said, which is exactly right, which is that this obsession with Russiagate was obscuring all of the other real, you know, uh, attacks on core liberties and economic justice and and everything else that the Trump administration was doing, they don't have to agree with that, but but nonetheless air it, invite people on, ask hard questions, and they just stop doing that. If you were radioactive to the left or to liberals because you were deemed insufficiently anti-Trump or anti-Russiagate, they would just not have you on. They'd stop becoming a venue where dissenting voices could be heard. And finally, there's one thing I want to address when it comes to DN and also the intercept, because I think it applies as well, is that there are all sorts of theories as to what accounts for these editorial shifts. Why are both of these outlets not just peddling Russiagate, but also going along with the national security state on issues like Syria, which to me is one of the biggest national security state scandals ever, just the amount of money that was spent on a dirty war and how much the truth of that was obscured. And I don't think it's something nefarious, some sort of overt kind of someone tells someone, you know, if you cover it this way, then I'll then I'll give you funding for Democracy Now! Or in the case of The Intercept, it's Pierre Omidyar, the owner, saying anything. I think it's simply just how manufacturing consent works, the propaganda model of Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. And part of that is simply this mechanism where if you want to be accepted, you want to be considered part of the club, you just internalize what the dominant narratives are. And for whatever reason, during Russiagate, those lines between lib uh, left media and mainstream media just got uh, pummeled even more than they were before, whereas there used to be a distinction. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, if you if you agree with my analysis there. I do. Um, you know, just going back to the thesis of Chris Hayes's book, the argument was not that 
well-intentioned, smart people enter institutions and become consciously corrupt by knowingly lying, by saying things they know are false in order to keep their job. That's just like primitive corruption. That wasn't his argument. That's not what made it an interesting book. The, the book, the idea of the book was when you get immersed in a particular culture, you start absorbing its pieties and orthodoxies, and you start seeing the world through the, the prism of the people that you're constantly around. And then you have subliminal you know, positive encouragement. I think one of the things we have to realize is, you know, human beings are political and social animals. We have that in our DNA. You know, 10,000 years ago, if you were ostracized from your tribe, it meant that you would die. You know, being part of a, of, of a tribe and accepted within a tribe is, was, was not something necessary for survival. So we evolved needing that. And that's why things like shame and ostracization are things that we fear so much so, you know, I, I totally agree with you that it doesn't have to be this kind of overt conspiracy. You know, it's, it's what Noam Chomsky always used to say to these journalists in that iconic interview he did. Well, I know some of the best and best known investigative reporters in the United States. I won't mention names because I'm like, whose attitude toward the media is much more cynical than mine. In fact, <clears throat> they regard the media as a sham. And they know and they consciously talk about how they try to play it like a violin. If they see a little opening, they'll try to squeeze something in that ordinarily wouldn't make it through. Uh, and it's perfectly true that the majority, I'm, I'm sure you're speaking for the majority of journalists who are trained, have it driven into their heads, that this is a crusading uh, profession, adversarial, we stand up against power, a very self-serving view. Uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, I hate to make a value judgment, but the better journalists, and in fact the ones who are often regarded as the best journalists, have quite a different picture, and I think a very realistic one. How, how, can, you, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I know that journalists are... I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. Where he was speaking to a BBC journalist who kept saying, mocking Chomsky's media theories about propaganda and manufacturing consent by saying, I don't ever get told what to say and what I can't say. And Chomsky said, oh no, I, I, I'm sure you're telling the truth about that. I believe that you believe everything you're saying. My point is that if you didn't believe it, you wouldn't be in that seat. You wouldn't be the BBC host. So all of these cultural pressures get put on people to shape what they say and what they think. You know, I, 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 people have asked me before, like the article that I was that I wanted to write for the intercept about the Hunter Biden story, it wasn't even really, you know, new reporting. It was just my analysis of what these documents showed. It was a media critique of the failure on the part of media organizations to take seriously the questions that they raised and to pursue those questions. It had no chance of like swinging the election, right? It wasn't like a, a big scoop that I had. I wasn't re doing original reporting on the laptop itself by publishing documents. It would have made no difference. So why would the Intercept editors risk my leaving or alienating me so much when I'm the co-founder, I bring in more traffic than anybody by far, more donations to stop my article? Obviously, it wasn't because they thought that my article would actually swing the election. It was because they had spent four years being accused in their social circles of having helped Donald Trump win and Hillary Clinton lose because we did so much reporting on the DNC and Podesta archives and did a lot of critical reporting on Hillary Clinton. And they felt like they were within their own milieu, kind of, you know, looked at in a negative way, which is a very powerful incentive. And they did not want to spend four more years 
even if Trump lost, being yet again accused, oh, look, right before the election, you tried to sabotage Biden by publishing this critical article about him using Hunter Biden. They were so afraid of what their Brooklyn liberal and leftist friends were going to say that that just shaped how they viewed my article. And again, it wasn't this conscious corruption or, or conspiracy, which is, oh, we know this article should be published journalistically, but corruptly, we want to censor it because we want to help Biden win or because we want to avoid recriminations by our friends. It's much more insidious than that. It's much more subliminal. It's just people get influenced by their cultural surroundings. And if you're immersed in a culture where homogenous views reign, you will end up subservient to those views because there's so many punishments and and so many recriminations from going contrary to them and so many rewards from embracing them. And accordingly, I'm wondering if there's a connection possibly between these fundraising emails that I keep getting from The Intercept claiming that their donations are way down and the fact that your Substack is a wild success. Well, I do find it interesting if you look at the most uh, successful Substack pages, almost all of generating a large amount of money, amounts of money that are significant to these failing outlets. Most of them have either been driven out of these failing outlets because of their heresies ideologically or felt so uncomfortable within them that they basically left because they felt like they couldn't comfortably stay there any longer. And so it is ironic and almost karmic justice that these outlets, by becoming so repressive and by refusing to air any kind of dissent from this homogeneity, are not only becoming journalistically corrupt, right? It's very corrupt journalistically not to air dissent to the things that you're saying. But they're also, it's a form of suicide. Nobody wants to read, you know, 80 outlets that are all saying the same things constantly and excluding any dissent. So in a sense, they're digging their own graves by becoming these bastions of ideological homogeneity. You know, I mean, if the new, if democracy now is going to become nothing more than, you know, a slightly less produced version of, of MSNBC or a less financed version of the New York Times, why would anyone continue to watch democracy now if it's just the same stuff? You just can go to the original source of the New York Times or MSNBC. That's why Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and Vulture and Vice and all the rest are failing because they don't offer anything unique. And if someone within them does offer anything unique, they get driven out. Well, it's my hope that Democracy Now! will hear that because unlike other outlets, I've seen it up close. They do listen to their audience and they do, I think, have, I hope, the capacity to change. Uh, we'll leave it there. Glenn Greenwald, uh, he writes at greenwald.substack.com. And the new book is Securing Democracy my fight for press freedom and justice in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Glenn, thanks very much. Always great to talk to you, Aaron. Thanks for having me.